Hello darlings and welcome back to Past Loves, the weekly history podcast that explores affection, infatuation and attachment across time to add a touch of romance to daily life. I'm Holly, your true romantic host, and this is the one year anniversary of the podcast special. Honestly, this is extremely exciting for me that Past Loves is now officially one year old. And I would like to thank each and every one of you for supporting me with this project. I started Past Loves in the first lockdown in 2020, and it was an absolute dream to have a project to keep me so busy, (laughs) but also the time to really invest in something I knew I was going to absolutely love doing. I remember the exact moment that I told my brother, who was the first person I told, that I was thinking about doing a podcast about the greatest love stories in history called Past Loves. And um, his reaction, he just went, huh, not a bad idea. And at that moment, although that wasn't, you know, dripping in enthusiasm, I realised if Joe could have that pretty good reaction, then uh, I just needed to be brave and go for it. I really didn't expect how much pleasure I was going to get from researching the couples, talking with my glorious guests, and connecting with all of you over on my Instagram page at Past Loves Podcast. I started to like fizz with excitement again which was something that I had really been missing. And so to be here one year on is just wonderful. Looking back over the past year, we have managed to explore some truly wonderful love stories from the depths of the 19th century Russian countryside with the Chikachevs to British royalty with Victoria and Albert. We've ventured to the heart of the artistic milieu in Paris with Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas as guides and have been offered access into the familial archives of some of the finest stately homes in Britain, including Harewood House, Castle Howard and Beaver Castle. From Tudor dynasties to 20th century ballet stars, truly it has been quite the adventure over the past year, and there are still so many stories to explore. For the anniversary special, we are going to delve into a love story that I have wanted to discuss for so long now, Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV. Now, I think that it's hardly surprising, especially because I'm far more comfortable in modern history than I am in the 15th century, that my first interaction with their story was with The White Queen, which is the BBC adaptation of Philippa Gregory's novels, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So I wanted to explore the fact behind the fiction and to discuss this with me today is the lovely Gemma Holman. 
Gemma is a medieval historian who founded Just History Posts in 2016. She also writes articles for the likes of Stylist Magazine, Inside History Magazine and BBC History Extra. Her book, Royal Witches, From Joan of Navarre to Elizabeth Woodville, was published by the History Press in 2019. Royal Witches explores the lives of Joan of Navarre, Eleanor Cobham, Jaquetta Woodville and Elizabeth Woodville in the 15th century, looking at how rumours of witchcraft brought them to their knees in a time when superstition and suspicion was rife. So in essence, she explores how claims of witchcraft were used as a powerful political tool to limit these women's influences. It's an absolutely fascinating book, which looks at witchcraft from an entirely different angle. But Gemma is also really wonderful at adding texture to these women's lives, outlining the source material that we do have, and exploring the different ways in which it could be interpreted. And for our purposes here, she explores the intertwined lives of Elizabeth and Edward, how their relationship blossomed over the years, with some fairly significant consequences for Elizabeth, which is where the witchcraft ties in. So it's quite the interesting narrative that we follow with this couple. Elizabeth and Edward are a fascinating love story set in a warring kingdom, which is sure to capture your heart too. Welcome, Gemma, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. (laughs) So I'm very excited because we're going to talk about a quite incredible couple, Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV. But I thought we should start with Elizabeth because... I mean, I'm quite the fan of Elizabeth already. (laughs) How would you describe her? Oh, that's an interesting one. I think Elizabeth is a little bit of an enigma in history. She's one of the sort of very divisive characters of the 15th century, um, as quite a lot of the women of that period are. And she seems to be a little bit of a love her or hate her kind of person. And I think probably the reality lies somewhere in the middle, as is often the case. But she definitely seems to have been a very intelligent woman, a very cultured woman. She sort of inherited a lot of good traits from her mother, who was quite a high status lady. So she had all of the right mannerisms that a woman of that period should have. She seems to have been sort of, you know, able to read um, and possibly do some writing possibly knew some languages. So definitely very cultured, intelligent woman. And there's a lot of very positive accounts of her character from her reign, from contemporaries who knew her, who said that she was beautiful, she was gracious, and, you know, in many ways was an ideal, perfect queen. But there's also these more negative aspects of her personality and that of her family that come from the same period and beyond of this idea that they were sort of greedy, social upstarts. They alienated people around them because they just wanted money and power for themselves and they didn't really care who they hurt um, within that. And there's a few sort of 
more nasty stories related to that that have kind of marred her reputation over the centuries a lot more negative than I think she probably was in reality you know I'm not saying Mm. she was a perfect woman but I think who is exactly (laughs) Um, and you know I think the sort of positive accounts of her and the way that she was clearly loved by the people of the kingdom far outweigh it and show that she probably was a very nice person and you know even when you take into account sort of possible propaganda and things I think the way that it was very clear that she was really well loved particularly by the people of London showed that she probably was quite a nice person and certainly in terms of the 15th century standards was viewed as being an ideal woman and an ideal queen. Yeah now you mentioned her mother Jacetta Can you explain who her parents were and the scandal behind their marriage? Because that's quite important, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, again, Jaquetta, a very interesting woman. She was part of the Luxembourg royal family. She was sort of part of an offshoot. Um, Her father owned lots of lands in northern France. He was a count of various places. But she was related to the French royal family in various ways and you know lots of other noble families one of her I think like her fourth cousin was the Holy Roman Emperor so you know she had really powerful ancestry noble blood running through her so she was a very high-born woman and her first husband was actually a prince of England she married the Duke of Bedford who was the uncle of Henry VI And while she was married to him, he was the heir to the throne because uh, Henry VI at the time was a 10-year-old boy who wasn't married, obviously didn't have any children. So if fate had gone differently and Henry VI had died as a child, Jaquetta could have become Queen of England. So she's definitely a really high-status woman who is viewed as a good enough person to marry such a man. But after her first husband dies, she very swiftly remarries. And this is a really scandalous marriage. She marries a knight called Richard Woodfill, and he is of a much lower status than her. You know, in terms of the general hierarchy of the country, he was a pretty well-to-do man. He was a knight. Um, He had fair bits of land, been a soldier. He'd been a servant of the crown. He'd sort of been involved in some vaguely important political events. So he wasn't like just a nobody, mm. but he was he was in terms of the nobility, he was really far down the rungs. And although he would have interacted with the kings and dukes at court, he would have been viewed more as an inferior person, more of a servant rather than a friend and ally. And so for Chiquetta to marry a man of his status was a huge scandal. There's accounts of her family back home being really upset about this. It was a big scandal at court. So, yeah, it was a really shocking marriage. And it was quite an unusual marriage in many ways. So it wasn't necessarily hugely unusual for mismatched marriages in this period. I mean, her sister-in-law was Eleanor, who was Duchess of Gloucester. And Eleanor was the daughter of a knight. And she had also married Bedford's brother. So she had also married a Prince of England. But a lot of these cases that had happened over the last 100, 200 years were of lower status women marrying higher status men. And that was a lot more acceptable because the children's status would be inherited from their father. So they would inherit his higher status, his land, his titles. And in terms of a wife, you know, although you did want status because you would still get land and noble blood through that marriage of the wife, 
it's more important for the wife to have her own personal virtues. And at the end of the day, anyone could give birth to a child. So although, you know, you still wouldn't have married a nobody, marrying a woman of a lower status wasn't seen as as big a deal. So for Jaquetta as a high status woman to marry a lower status man was a lot more of a problem, um, as will be seen later on, in trying to define the status of their children, because they would inherit the status of their father, but you couldn't ignore how noble the mother was. And so they kind of ended up being in a bit of a grey area in between sort of Jaquetta and and Richard, um, and no one was entirely sure sort of how to deal with them. So Elizabeth is kind of born into this environment where she is really a lower status woman, a lot lower status than her mother. And it's only really later things uh, that that sort of catapult her back up the social ladder, really. Yeah. And this is all happening in the context of the War of the Roses, which as a context is is pretty uh, complex. But if you could just give a brief overview of what this means for the Woodvilles. That would be really useful. Yeah, so the Wars of the Roses are a sort of series of uh, civil war, basically, in England in the 15th century. And it's sort of sparked by this rivalry between the two houses of York and Lancaster. And so the king at the time was Henry VI, who was part of the Lancastrian house. And he had become king when he was nine months old. So there'd been years and years and years of sort of regency councils and he wasn't really in charge. And then even when he did become king, he doesn't seem to have really have taken the reins strongly like his father had. Um, And he relied a lot on the guidance of favourites and the guidance of his wife. But basically, at some point, he suffers a huge mental break and he sort of becomes catatonic. He doesn't respond to anybody, you know, he has no awareness of his surroundings, nobody can talk to him, he won't speak, he can't move, he has to be fed and properly looked after. And he's in this state for sort of over a year. And obviously, you know, this is a terrible thing for the King of England to to be completely unresponsive. And so a sort of Regency Council is set up and they try to keep going without him for a while. But eventually they need someone to act as king because there are things happening that only a king can authorise and there's no king around to do it. And so they end up inviting the Duke of York to be protector of the realm. And the Duke of York was descended from Edward III through both of his parents. And many people viewed him as Henry's heir because Henry didn't have any children at this point. point. His wife was pregnant, but she, you know... He was kind of his heir, really. And so he sort of takes over running the kingdom whilst Henry's in this state. And many see him as a much more competent king than Henry. He does a lot to recoup the royal finances. He helps secure the land in France when they'd been losing the wars with France. He helped unite warring nobility. There had been all these petty fights that had been going on. So for many people, they were seeing him as a much more competent ruler And so once Henry VI recovers, there ends up being this rivalry between the two men where Henry undoes a lot of the things that Richard of York had done. But then at various points, Henry keeps on going back into this state where he's not able to rule and York has to be called back in as protector. And so eventually this kind of combination of things 
means that York's under suspicion of treason. So Henry's wife doesn't like the power that he's having and this idea that he could disinherit her son. And so you end up having the two sides fighting each other. York decides maybe he could be king and he would be a better king. And then you have Margaret and Henry on the other side wanting Henry to stay king. And you just have this series of battles and the country is split in two and people aren't too sure who to support because they like the idea of York being king and he's more competent, but also they don't really want to overthrow a king. You know, that's a really serious thing. And so even though he might not be seen as a good king, he's still the king. And so you have over a decade of fighting between these two people. And eventually York gets recognised as heir to the throne. So he's placed as regent over Henry. It's stipulated that he can't do anything to end Henry's life. Henry will remain king in name until he dies. But once he dies, York and all of his heirs will become king. So he's basically got the throne to himself. He ends up dying in battle whilst he's trying to put down some uprisings. Margaret's using this chance to try and get the throne back just for Henry and his son. But York's son, uh, Edward, doesn't want to give up his own claim to the throne now. And he finally manages to win this battle and have himself crowned king and Henry is deposed. But it's not quite that simple. And sort of for most of the rest of the century, there's still on and off fights between the two sides, um, trying to bring Henry back or trying to bring Edward back. And the crown passes hands between them several times. So it's a very messy period. But the Woodvilles were Lancastrian, is that right? Yes. So Jaquetta, having been married into the Lancastrian royal family, had been on on their side and Richard Woodville had been a a loyal servant and soldier for the Lancastrians across many decades. That's had his father. And the couple became quite good friends with Henry VI and his wife, Margaret. So they did support them all through the Wars of the Roses. And Elizabeth's first husband actually died in battle fighting for the Lancastrians. So they were definitely one of the most prominent Lancastrian families in the country. And it's only right at the end, once Edward is proclaimed king very firmly, that they finally move over to the Yorkist side. And that's only when it's very clear that it's the end. You know, there's, there's no more hope. And their choice is either exile and leave the country and have a precarious future or be reconciled to the new regime. Um, So they choose to move over to the Orchists, and and once they've moved over, their loyalty stays there. So you mentioned, I mean, fair enough, with that much, you know, strife happening, you just accept that. (laughs) Definitely, yes, you can understand it. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned Elizabeth's first husband. Can you describe briefly what happened there? Yeah, so Elizabeth was Jaquetta and Richard's oldest daughter. She was married off around the age of sort of 15, 16 years old to a local, not quite landowner, but they're sort of a vaguely noble family. They were barons, the Grey family. So again, in in terms of nobility, reasonably lower down the ladder. They were still titled, you know, they were lords and ladies. They had this baronet. But they're not really high. They're not dukes or counts or or anything like that. So, again, that marriage kind of reflects what Elizabeth's social status was at the time, that they were really marrying in line with her father's social status rather than her mother's. Um, So they were a local family. They were only about a day's ride away from where the Woodvilles lived. 
So it was very much a kind of local match, build up that power in that area with people that you knew where your land is going to be sort of intertwined with each other. So she married when she was a teenager and she had two children with her first husband when she was in her late teens. But as mentioned, he does die fighting in the Wars of the Roses. And so she is widowed and she's quite young when she's widowed. She's only in her early 20s. And she's got these two children to look after. So it is quite a precarious position for her to be in, having lost her husband so young. Yeah. And how had her financial situation particularly been affected? Because that's quite important for what happens a little later on. Yeah. So when she had married her first husband, he was the only heir to his parents. So his mother held a sort of ladyship in her own right. They had numerous manors and lands and and a couple of titles. And so he was her heir um, and his father's heir. And then obviously the two sons that he had with Elizabeth uh, were then to become his heirs. So when the couple were married, his parents had given them a couple of manors, I think it was three manors, that was an income of about 100 marks a year, um, which was a fair amount of money for the time, especially for their social standing. And this was meant to sustain the couple so that they could sort of, you know, live on their own two feet rather than having to have the parents give them money. And it was meant to set up the inheritance for their children. But once the husband has died, this property is meant to stay in Elizabeth's land, you know, it's gifted to the couple and their children. Mm. So, you know, Elizabeth was meant to be in charge of it until her sons came of age and they could take over. And then she would have had her own portion of it as the widow. But it seems that basically something happened with her mother-in-law. Either the mother-in-law didn't like her or maybe something happened after they were widowed that sort of caused them to fall out. It's not really very clear. But the mother seems to have tried to reclaim these manners that she had given them. She wanted them back for herself. And they had this legal battle between the two of them about who's allowed to keep this land. And this fight for inheritance sits at the foundation of the legend around how Elizabeth and Edward met. Could you please tell the story that is kind of put through the ages of their mystical meeting? Yeah, so there's a really great legend that builds up um, around Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV, who she marries. And the legends actually start very soon after they're married. You know, this isn't sort of a story that appears hundreds of years afterwards. Within a few years of their marriage, people are reporting this and they're reporting it abroad. There's Italian chroniclers writing about this beautiful love match between the two. And it was really sold as this love story. And the story was that Edward and some of his royal court were nearby to where Elizabeth's parents lived. And he was out hunting and Elizabeth had heard that the king was in the region. And so she decided she wanted to petition him personally in this fight with her mother-in-law to try and get the king's favour and get him to rule in her favour. And so she goes out and stands underneath this tree where she knows that the king's going to ride past. And she brings her two young sons with her as well. You know, these handsome little boys, Mm -hmm. golden haired children. And she stands underneath this tree and looks very distressed. And Edward rides past and he can't help but see this beautiful young woman looking so sad. And he rides (laughs) over to 
for her to see what's wrong. And she explains her situation and he's immediately charmed by her and immediately falls in love with her and wants to help her. So he helps her get her land and he comes back again and again to see her and he decides that he wants to seduce her and make her his mistress. He wants this woman. She's so beautiful and lovely. But Elizabeth is this really chaste, clever lady and she won't stoop to be a mistress. She is uh, a lady of noble birth. Her mother has this grand lineage and so she's far too good a lady to become someone's mistress. Mm. And she's constantly rebuffing him whilst he's making his moves on her. And in one of the versions of the legends, there's this really dramatic scene where he's sort of in her house trying to make her sleep with him. And she puts this dagger to her throat and says, you know, I would rather die than sleep with you. <laughs> Not in like a harsh I mean, way, it's like but... questionable romance at this point, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, so not not so much in a your horrible way, but in a you know I won't stoop to sort yeah. of sex outside of wedlock. I won't be a mistress, and all of this just makes Edward want her even more. It's such a sort of drives him crazy with passion, and the fact that she is rebuffing him in his eyes means that she's actually a really noble lady, and she is worthy of him because she isn't giving in to him. And this just makes him fall in love with her even more. And so eventually he persuades her to marry him instead. And again, in this story, she says, oh, you know, I'm far too good to be your mistress, but I'm not good enough to be your wife. And this is the kind of conflict. But eventually he does persuade her to marry him. And they get married in secret on May the 1st, which is May Day, a day traditionally associated with love. So again, it's a really romantic wedding. They get married in secret. He consummates their marriage for hours, it is said. Um, and then he sort of rides back to his royal court and pretends that he was out hunting and nobody knows that they've gotten married. And so for the next few months, their marriage is kept a secret and he steals away from the royal court to keep on visiting her. So definitely this very dramatic, romantic story mm. gets passed around very soon after their marriage. I mean, however wonderful that story is, do we have any idea of other possible ways that actually they might have come across each other? Yeah, so the two of them probably will have met at some point in their lives. It's a bit difficult to pinpoint when, but Richard Woodville, so Elizabeth's father, had served under the Duke of York, who was Edward's father. Um, They'd served together in France. And in fact, Edward's mother and Jaquetta, Elizabeth's mother, had also been out there at the same time. They'd all been together in this big retinue. And so certainly the parents knew each other and they'd served with each other. And as mentioned, you know, Jaquetta was a lady-in-waiting at the court. Richard did serve as a knight of the garter and served in various positions at court. So they were at court at various points during their lives. And so the children probably would have met at some point. But the thing is, even if they did meet, they probably met when they were quite young children because Elizabeth was actually a few years older than Edward. And when she was getting married uh, to her first husband, Edward was only about 10 years old. And once she'd married her first husband, she wouldn't really have been at court. She would have been with her new husband in their home together. She wasn't a really high status lady, so she wouldn't have been taking part in lots of court festivities and things. Mm. So they probably wouldn't have really known each other that much sort of through their teen years. Again, it doesn't mean they couldn't have met. You know, they might have been at court at Christmas time together or things like that. 
but there would have been some occasions for them to meet but probably by the time of them getting married they probably wouldn't have met in, in too many occasions as Elizabeth wouldn't really have been caught that much and you know Edward was really busy he had seized the throne <laughs> and so you know he didn't really have time for lots of parties and meeting lots of ladies at court and he was busy fighting battles in person mm. trying to hold of his throne so he had other things to worry about so yeah they certainly would have had chances to meet and their families definitely knew each other and and were friendly with each other so it's not that it probably would have been their first ever meeting at that time but it might well have been their first meeting as adults Hmm. and does Edward's behavior marrying Elizabeth in secret suggest anything of the way he might have felt about her yeah, I think is telling on two fronts, really. Um, I think on the one hand, it is telling that there was probably some aspect of this romantic story of them were true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there probably were strong feelings between the two of them for him to undertake this marriage. Part of it being in secret shows that he did know that it was possibly not the best marriage for him to be undertaking. And that he knew that there would have been a lot of grievances against it and that people wouldn't want this to happen. If he knew that everything would be fine and he just loved this woman and wanted to marry her, there's no reason for it to be kept a secret. And so he clearly did know that it was maybe not the best thing to do, which is why he did it in secret. But the fact that it was in secret, as I said, then in turn means that he probably did care for her and want to marry her because he had so many other options that he could have married. And so, yeah, I think it does definitely suggest that there was a level of attraction between them. I do, however, still think that there was an aspect of politics to it. One of the arguments that's been made sort of for decades around their marriage was whether it was the rash actions of a young man who was in love with this beautiful woman and he just had to marry her and didn't think about the consequences. Mm or whether it was actually really calculated on his behalf. And I think it probably was a little bit of both. You know, I do think that there was that attraction there and he wanted to marry specifically Elizabeth. But there were definitely advantages to it. Lots of the downsides have been cited are the fact that he was expected to marry a foreign bride because that would have brought alliances with different countries to be really powerful for England, especially when England was quite weak after the Civil War. It could have bought lands and inheritance. It could have bought a really huge dowry, which again was really needed for England because all of the fighting had meant that it'd run out of money. So in all of those aspects, marrying Elizabeth was terrible because he didn't get any of that. But on the plus side, he had seen how unpopular Henry VI's marriage had been. He had married Margaret of Anjou. And although she was a foreign bride who was related to the French crown and of other royal families... The marriage was really unpopular in England. You know, everybody really didn't like her. The marriage was unpopular for political reasons because England actually had to give away land that they owned for the marriage, which was really unpopular. They'd been fighting for decades for this land in France that they just gave away on the marriage. And she didn't bring any money with her. So although she was a foreign bride, she still didn't bring any of those benefits. And it really did contribute to a lot of the strife during Henry's reign because people were really suspicious that the French crown were trying to steal England's lands and they'd sent this foreign woman in to do it. Um, So in that aspect, he was quite clever not marrying a foreigner. And the other side of it was that she had so many siblings. 
and only two of them were married. So the majority of them were unmarried. And again, he's only a few years into his reign. There's still lots of rebellions from the Lancastrian side. Henry VI and Margaret are just across the border waiting for any opportunities to come back. And so he really needs to get as much support in the country as he can to keep his hold on the throne. And throughout the previous few years, he'd really had this policy of reconciliation. And any Lancastrian who wanted to come back and support him, he welcomed in, including Elizabeth's own father. So by having all of these Lancastrians brought into the throne, you know, her family, it not only gave him more support, but it meant that he could marry off her siblings to other members of the nobility, and that would bring them closer to the crown. So on that side, it was actually quite clever politically in many ways. And I think he probably would have thought about all of that to an extent, because the fact that the marriage was done in secret shows that it was planned to an extent. You know, they didn't just suddenly elope. By the way, we got married last night. You know, it was sort of, it was done in secret and it was kept secret for a while. So although it might have been rash and due to love, I still think he would have thought about it. He's had the council talking to him for years about who he's going to marry. When he was three years old, it was proposed that he might marry one of the French princesses. So he's had his whole life knowing that he's expected to have a good match and he would have never forgotten that. So I do think that he must have thought to an extent about the politics of the marriage as well as just the love or lust for Elizabeth. Yes, I agree. I think that makes far more sense than just, uh, as you said, eloping. I think maybe we should talk a little bit about who Edward was because we haven't really touched on him much as a person yet. So how would you describe Edward? I think Edward's a really interesting character as well, really. He's sort of grown up in this, you know, noble family. He said his father is descended from Edward III, is viewed as an heir to the throne, and it's quite a luxurious lifestyle in many respects. They've got lots of land, they've got lots of money, they've got lots of titles. So he does have quite a nice, upbringing I mean the family's fortunes do change a little bit over time so his father becomes lieutenant of Ireland for several years and whilst this is a really prestigious position he has to use a lot of his own money for it and it basically makes him almost go broke and so the family is in quite a difficult situation for quite a while which would have impacted him as well but he seems to have been quite a cultured man How far his sort of education went isn't quite clear. It's not like he was super bookish. He definitely seems to have had interest in sort of education and the arts, even though he was much more warfare based. But he was a very handsome man. Contemporaries are very clear that he's viewed as a very attractive, handsome man. He was very Um, tall, wasn't he? Very tall. Very tall. So he's handsome, he's tall. He's clearly very charismatic. He's 22 years old when he marries Elizabeth. He's about 18 when he becomes king. And although you do have things in his favour of Henry being unpopular and his father already having paved the way for him to become king, for an 18-year-old to overthrow a monarch and become crowned himself, I think shows that he must have been very charismatic and very personable and people must have really liked him and so again that sort of all weighs into his favour as to why for Elizabeth he would be attractive he's not just tall and handsome he's nice he's he's charming he's amusing 
got this personality and this pull to him that is all very attractive qualities as well. And he is a very successful military commander. He is powerful. He wins so many fights. He's very worldly as well to have been taking part in all of this at such a young age and to have all this responsibility. So he's definitely a very capable person as well. I think the two of them were quite well matched in many of those respects. You know, they'd both been brought up taught about courtly etiquette and how they needed to behave and how they needed to fulfill their roles in an ideal way. Mm. So how did court react when Edward announced, actually, my wife is Elizabeth Woodville? Yeah, so as, as much as I thought of talk about the positives of their marriage, it was a big shock at the time. And part of that is down to the way that Edward decides to make the announcement. And this is a council meeting where his court have been looking at potential wives for him for a little while. And there's a few negotiations going on and there's talks of marrying a relative of the King of France. Uh, The King of Castile offers up his sister. Various dukes in the French region are interested in alliances. So there's quite a few options there for Edward. And these have been pursued to various extents, but they need to kind of know what Edward wants so that they know which alliance to really hone in on. And so they've been pressuring him for a little while. And there's this meeting and they're really trying to pin him down and pressure him and say, you know, what are we going to do? Who are you going to marry? And he sort of just suddenly goes, I can't marry any of them. I'm already married. (laughs) And you can just imagine what that must have been like, you know, this group of men like, right, what are we going to do? And then he just sort of goes, oh, sorry, guys. I'm already taken. Surprise. Um, yeah, so that alone is going to be a shock. And then when he reveals who his bride is, Elizabeth Woodville, it only adds to that. Again, there's contemporary records of the reaction of the people in the room. And they say, Elizabeth, she might be very beautiful and she might be very gracious, but she's not a match for you. And mm-hmm. that is kind of the view. Um, and it does come back to this question mark over her status. And they even mention Jaquetta, even though she's Jaquetta's daughter, she's still not good enough for you. And that's the kind of issue here, really, that we touched upon at the start, is, is she worthy to marry him because she's Jaquetta's daughter? And Jaquetta was good enough to marry a prince of England, and she's related to all these royal families and has noble blood. Or is she not good enough because she's Richard's daughter, who is a lowly knight and who has risen up the ranks and has become a very powerful man. He is a knight of the garter, which is the most prestigious thing a man can be in the kingdom. But he has come from noble birth. And so she probably isn't good enough to marry a king, even despite Jaquetta's status. It is a huge shock to them. And Edward's just kind of blasts through it, really. You know, <laughs> He knows that they're married and that there's nothing that can be said against it. They're married. The the marriage is consummated. There's no actual reason they can't get married beyond social convention. Mm. And so there's really anything they can do about it. And so he brings her in and has her presented to court and goes, right, this is it. This is my wife. And (laughs) you've got to deal with it. But again, I think it's one of those things that once the dust settles, I think wasn't too much of an issue really I think again it's been kind of been played upon over the centuries this idea that it was just shocking marriage and it really alienated everyone in the kingdom and it was really terrible but actually after that initial shock comes out and Elizabeth is presented at court 
she is, as I said, this ideal woman and she behaves exactly how convention is expected and she follows all the protocols to a T and nobody can criticise her. She is acting perfectly. And when she has her coronation, Edward makes sure to emphasise her lineage on her mother's side. So her relatives from Luxembourg come over to remind people, look, she is related to powerful people. And you have these allegories about you have St. Paul is that a, a sort of representation of St. Paul is there, which is a kind of plain words on St. Paul, which is the place in France that her grandfather on her mother's side was count of. So again, sort of saying, look, she is actually quite a noble lady. And so I think once the dust settles and people see that actually she's behaving very well, she's what we would expect of a queen, she does actually have decent lineage um, and we can marry all of her siblings and get lots of power and get close to the throne. Yeah. I think it kind of dies down a little bit. And, you know, that's not to say that everyone accepted it. Certainly lots of people wouldn't have accepted it. And some of the marriages did cause some problems. But I think overall, once the dust settled, it wasn't viewed too badly. And certainly by the end of his reign, when he dies, there's no murmurs at all about her social status or anything. The political landscape of Edward's reign really affected how their relationship ended up functioning over the years. And there was a particular uprising in 1470. So can you explain what happened there and what it meant for the couple? Yeah, so one of the people who was certainly upset with Edward and Elizabeth getting married was Edward's cousin, who was the Earl of Warwick. And he's known as history as the kingmaker because he is really the person who helps Edward become king and maintain his early reign. He does a lot to get money and power and soldiers for Edward. He does a lot of running the country in the early years when Edward is busy doing these battles, trying to keep his throne. Warwick's there actually keeping the country going in the background. So Edward really relies heavily on him. But sort of as time goes on and the country calms down a bit, Edward's able to take over affairs more for himself. And so all these things that Warwick had been doing, slowly Edward starts doing them. And he starts to develop his own style and his own ideas. And so he starts to rule things his own way. And this starts to come into conflict with Warwick's ideas. You know, Warwick sort of follows this line of making an alliance with France. But Edward really doesn't want that. As I said, he's seen how that's failed with Henry VI's reign. And he doesn't really want to repeat that. And so he starts to favour other alliances. And these alliances are the same ones that his Woodville family, you know, Elizabeth's family, are also supporting because through Jaquetta, they've got their own alliances in Europe. And so they're wanting to bring those ties closer. And so I think in Warwick's eyes, it's not that Edward is becoming an independent man. It's that his wife is niggling in his ear and getting things for her family. And he's being pushed aside for the Woodvilles. And this does start to create a lot of conflict between Edward and Warwick. And so Warwick starts to build up his own alliances within the family with Edward's brothers, so particularly the Duke of Clarence, one of Edward's younger brothers. He becomes quite closely aligned to this. And eventually Warwick decides that enough is enough and that if he can't get his influence through Edward, he's going to get his influence through Clarence. And he's already made Edward king, so maybe he can do it again. And so he kind of gets this idea to ally himself with 
the Duke of Clarence, and he has his daughter married to the Duke of Clarence, and they have their own uprising. Not very clear aims. Some have been suggesting, you know, that the idea is to put Clarence on the throne instead. Whether that's more a sort of goal later on isn't quite clear. But certainly his aim was to get rid of the Woodfields so that he can have his influence over Edward again. He thinks if he can get rid of the Woodfields, then he can be powerful again and it will be okay. Mm. So yeah, he creates this rebellion and he actually manages to capture Edward. And so Edward is held as his hostage for several months. And during this time, he makes his moves against the Woodfields. So he captures Elizabeth's father and her brother and he has them executed without any form of legal trial. There's this sort of show trial, but there isn't a legal valid one. And he accuses them of ruling the realm for themselves at the detriment to the realm. You know, they're causing evil advice to the king and they're just getting things for themselves. And so he has them executed. And these accusations come up against Jaquetta, saying that she's been using witchcraft against the king and queen and against Warwick himself. And it's not really very clear what these accusations are, but the kind of hints uh, that she's possibly trying to hurt Warwick with witchcraft or that she might have even used love magic to make Edward fall in love with Elizabeth and thus get her daughter to become queen. So Jaquetta is in the line of fire as well. Now, luckily for Jaquetta, she comes out of this unscathed because Edward's been captured by Warwick for several months now. And during this time, the country falls apart. You know, Edward's been a really strong king and he's kept the country in line. But as soon as he's been removed, all of these nobles start having fights with each other. And all these quarrels that have been kept in check by the king, he's not there anymore. So they start fighting over land and and the country really starts to fall apart and it gets really dangerous for law and order. And so eventually Warwick realises that he has to let the king go free. Otherwise, everything's going to be a disaster. So he releases Edward and Edward quickly raises an army and he fixes all of the fighting that's going on. But obviously all of that has quite a strain on Elizabeth and Edward's relationship as well. Her mother is in danger. Her father and her brother have been killed by her husband's cousin. And after all of this is said and done, Edward again tries to reconcile things and he loves his cousin and he wants to bring him back in. And so he does reconcile with him and forgives him and brings him back to court. And I just think that it must have been such a tense atmosphere that Jaquetta and Elizabeth had to see this man every day or most days, knowing that he had killed members of their family yeah. um, without real cause. And so you can imagine that that must have put a bit of a strain onto their relationship, yeah. certainly. Especially because Elizabeth had gone through so much anyway, being in Westminster Abbey and didn't she give birth there as well whilst this was all happening? So she had her own traumatic experience regardless of what happened. Not long after Edward brings Warwick back, he sort of stays at court for a couple of months, but it's a very superficial reconciliation. And Warwick has just decided that enough is enough and that actually he can't be reconciled with Edward whilst these Woodvilles are around. And so he allies himself with Margaret of Anjou and Henry VI, and he helps them reclaim the country. So he helped Henry VI take the throne back, and through a sort of a series of battles that are unfortunate on Edward's side, he's forced to flee the country. And as you say, at this point, Elizabeth is left behind. So Edward has fled, and you know the old king is coming back with the old queen, and so Elizabeth's in quite a dangerous position. So as you say, she has to flee the sanctuary 
Westminster Abbey, protect herself and her children. She takes her children who had been born by that point already, her daughters, with her. She was pregnant at the time and she gives birth to her first son by Edward in sanctuary. In later times, this is great propaganda for the couple because his legitimate heir is born in sanctuary. <laughs> really powerful image and that sort of idea of God blessing his, yeah. uh, his kingship. He allowed the son to come whilst he was in sanctuary. And it's also really good in terms of Elizabeth is seen as suffering the people of London because the people of London support Edward. They don't like Margaret. And so whilst Elizabeth is in sanctuary, she's seen as suffering with them. And people knew she was there and they could hear her and what was going on. And so it's this really great imagery of this poor defenseless woman with her children hiding in the church whilst this evil king is on the throne. So in terms of later propaganda, it's great. But as you say, Edward is out of the country for about a year until he manages to come back and reclaim the throne again. But during that time, Elizabeth had no idea what would happen. For all she knew, he was never coming back. And she was either stuck in sanctuary or she would have to hope that you know, Henry and Margaret would let her go free and go and uh, go to be with Edward abroad. But her future is really uncertain and she is scared for her life. They could easily, they probably wouldn't kill her, but it's, you know, it's not out of the question that they could view her as a treasonous usurper and sentence her to death. So, yeah, it's definitely really terrifying. And having that time away from Edward and not knowing what's going on, again, definitely would put a real, real strain on their relationship. And you can kind of see when he does come back, he has to, for protocol, the first thing he has to do is go back and get the crown and be crowned in Westminster. But the very second thing that he does as soon as he's back here is he rushes to the sanctuary to see Elizabeth and see their children. You know, that's that's what he wants to do is be reunited with his wife. Um, and so that's quite a tender human thing to understand about their relationship as well. Yeah, it sounds like a very intense few years is <laughs> understatement. <laughs> You'd think being Queen of England would be great, but uh, not always what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> no. Do you believe that they had a happy marriage? I think so. I think the evidence that we've got shows they had 10 children together, 10 or 12. Yeah, she had 12 in total, 10 with him. Um, so, you know, they're 10 children together. So they obviously had some form of chemistry going on. They obviously didn't despise the science. <laughs> they do have this happy marriage. And there's this romantic legend of the start of their marriage, how far it's true or not. I think there has to be aspects of truth in there, not only because of how early on it occurs during their lifetime and not long after they're married, but also even if aspects were embellished for romance or for propaganda, they say that a good lie is based in truth, you know? And so I think aspects of it have to have been true, even to keep their stories straight. As I said, they clearly seem to have had quite a happy marriage together. Edward does seem to have had some mistresses. The extent to how many he had isn't quite clear. He, he's had this later reputation of being a real womanizer and sort of sleeping with any woman in the country. But it's there, we don't really have that many confirmed mistresses of his. And many of them are actually named after he's dead. So even then, we're not entirely sure how many are confirmed. There's a mention from a contemporary who was at Elizabeth's funeral that states that an illegitimate daughter of Edward's was at the funeral. So we know that he has to have at least had one relationship at one point in time outside of their marriage. But you have to bring in some contemporary standards. And it's not to say that people accepted 
men having mistresses and the wives didn't care and they weren't upset. There were lots that were upset and didn't yeah. like it. And you know, we have no evidence of how Elizabeth felt towards his relationships. But I think even though he did have other relationships, it's very clear that theirs was very strong. And it's very clear that he did love her throughout their marriage. His various wills that he makes throughout his life when he's going off to fight in France and isn't sure if he'll come back, he puts Elizabeth at the forefront of these wills. And he says that she's our most trusted and our most beloved wife. And throughout various grants throughout their lives, you know, even when they're newly married, he always refers to her as his most beloved wife. And I don't think that's just for show. I think the fact that he says it consistently throughout the whole of their marriage, I think they really did love each other and have a respectful relationship. And you do get surprising glimpses of their domestic life in the records. So there's an account from a foreign ambassador who is someone who helped Edward whilst he was exiled. He helped him get support from foreign dukes and get men and money to come back and get his kingdom back. And so once Edward has reclaimed his throne, he invites this gentleman back to England to say thank you. And he's this honoured guest of the court and he's taken around and sort of shown the various palaces and he goes to Windsor Castle and he comes home and writes about his travels. And there's a really lovely scene that he talks about where they're at, I'm pretty sure it's that Windsor Castle. And he's just talking about the family interacting. He says that Edward's dancing with his six-year-old daughter and the ladies are playing skittles in another room and they sit together and have dinner. And it's those little hints there that kind of suggest that it was a happy life. They weren't necessarily trying to put on a show for him. They don't know that he's going to write this account that's going to survive hundreds of years. It's not like it's a big propaganda moment. It's just them at home going, thank you for helping us. You've reunited this family. Look how, how much we love yeah. each other kind of thing. Um, so I think there are definitely lots of signs that it, it was a real relationship. Whatever the start, whether it was made for love or lust or for politics or whatever, I think that attraction was there from the start and I think it lasted throughout their marriage. Yeah, and actually it's quite sad that Edward dies relatively young and that leaves Elizabeth in quite an unusual position, particularly when Richard III, one of Edward's brothers, takes the throne because Richard III really wants to solidify his position. So what does he do to make sure that this is the case? Yes, Edward's death is really a surprise. He'd been very fit and healthy up to this point. There'd been no sort of hints of illnesses or infirmity at all. Christmas had been like this really glamorous affair at court. You know, the chroniclers are writing about how glamorous it was. Edward had managed to build up quite a lot of money by this point. So they had these grand festivities and he's got these really luxurious new clothes that all the chroniclers are saying how fashionable he looks and it was a really like amazing Christmas for them and then by March suddenly he's dead and it's not clear what he dies of even the chroniclers say he just sort of suddenly got sick and died a few days later so we have absolutely no idea what happened to him it's this really sudden death and he was only in his 40s so as you say it was very young especially when he didn't have any illnesses Elizabeth is suddenly left a widow with no warning and she's got all of these young children to look after. Her son by Edward, who's now the new king, he's only about 13 years old. 
So he's not old enough to become king on his own. She needs to set up a regency council to rule for him. But yeah, very quickly things start going wrong. And Richard, he's, whilst Edward's son is being called back to London, because he wasn't in London at the time, he was elsewhere in the country. He's being called back to London to get ready for his coronation and set up this council. And Richard meets him with some men and he seizes the men who are escorting his son so who's also called Edward very helpfully yeah um he seizes the child Edward um and sort of pledges his allegiance to him so he was being escorted by some of Elizabeth's relatives one of her sons from her first marriage um one of her brothers as well and he sort of follows this line of the Woodvilles and not what they see they're these evil advisors and we're your true subjects you know we're here to look after you and the people who have got you at the moment, they're not looking after you. They're not out for your best interest. And so he kind of seizes him, brings him down to London himself. Ostensibly, he maintains that, yeah, I'm just here to look after him. You know, I'll, I can help with the Regency Council. And, you know, I'm, I'm Edward's brother. So it's my right to sort of help rule the kingdom whilst his child is young. And we'll prepare for his coronation. That's fine. And they even set a date for the coronation. But then the date comes and goes and there's still no coronation. And Edward's been put in the Tower of London, uh, which isn't as ominous as it seems. At the time, the Tower of London was a royal palace. The Tower of London is where the kings traditionally stayed before their coronation. But he's put in the tower and he never comes out again. And Richard kind of persuades Elizabeth, who's become very aware that things aren't quite right, And so she's fled to sanctuary again in Westminster and she's brought her children with her. And one of the children she's brought with her is her second son with Edward. And Richard manages to get the Archbishop of Canterbury to persuade Elizabeth to release her son, her second son, into Richard's custody because he's saying, well, we need to get ready for the coronation. And how can he be crowned king when his mother and his brother are hiding in sanctuary? What kind of message does that put across? So the Archbishop guarantees the safety of her son, and so she reluctantly agrees to let him out of her custody. And so he goes to the Tower of London as well. And both boys eventually are never seen again, and they're known as the Princes of, uh, of the Tower, you know, one of the most infamous stories in history. And mm-hmm. it's sort of widely believed that they were murdered in the Tower, either at Richard III's orders or by someone who was supporting him. And as I said, they never come out again. Edward is never crowned. And suddenly Richard declares that he's going to be king instead. And he releases this thing with Parliament called Titius Regius. And this is basically the statement as to why Richard should be king. Because really he shouldn't have been king. Edward's sons should have been king. He's not in line at all for the throne. Well, he is, but, you know, yeah. not, not for quite a few more You're, you're walking quite a far away from the main bit of the tree at that point. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, And so he has to like justify why he should be king instead of Edward's sons. And really, the only way that he would be king would be if Edward's sons weren't alive, which at that point they still were or were maintained to be. But even if they were dead, they're still his daughters to consider. Um, Although England didn't have a queen regnant yet, there's lots of signs that the country wouldn't have necessarily been opposed to having a queen ruling in her own right at this point. And so he needs to come up with reasons. And so if the reason isn't that they're dead, the only other reason would be that they're not allowed to inherit the throne. And the only reason they wouldn't be allowed to inherit the throne is if they were illegitimate. So he releases these articles 
giving all of these reasons as to why Edward and Elizabeth's marriage was invalid. Because if their marriage was invalid, then their children have been allowed to inherit the throne. And it's this really interesting document because it's filled with lots of flimsy reasons. So he lists the fact that their marriage happened in secret without the consent of the lords. And this is not, in fact, a valid reason for their marriage to be invalid. Although tradition had kind of dictated that the king should consult his council, it wasn't law. So just because they got married in secret, no bearing on whether their marriage was legal or not. The church was very keen to enforce marriages in this period. And as many men found out when seducing a woman uh, under promises of marrying her, even a promise to marry was in many cases considered enough to get married. And so just because they did it in secret, there was still a priest there. It was still a legal marriage. Another thing he says is that it was invalid because Edward was actually at the time engaged to another lady. And again, under medieval law, if you were engaged to someone, it was quite official. You know, it wasn't just like, yeah, we'll get married at some point. It was a reason that if you were engaged to someone else and then you married someone else without properly breaking off that engagement, it was a reason for it to be invalid. But again, it's quite flimsy. It was something from years and years ago. There was never any real proof that he was engaged to this woman. She's also they dead at this out. point. Dead at this point. <laughs> they never come out at a previous point. And also, you know, for a marriage as long as Edward and Elizabeth's with so many children, there would have had to have been an insanely good reason for the church not to uphold their marriage. Because at the end of the day, the church wanted to uphold marriages more than they wanted to dissolve them. And although they were happy to dissolve marriages for proper reasons, if a couple had been married for as long as they had, for 20 odd years, if not more, with loads of children, they would much rather keep those children legitimate and keep that long marriage legitimate than say, oh yeah, at one point he might have been proposed to someone else, but nothing really happened. Mm. That wasn't going to be enough to annul it. And interestingly for me, uh, another reason that he says the marriage is invalid is he says that as is the common knowledge of the realm, the marriage was only brought about by the sorcery and witchcraft of Elizabeth and her mother, Jaquetta, which is a very interesting thing to slide in there. For many reasons, this idea that he's bringing back this thing that Warwick had decades before said that Jaquetta had been using witchcraft against the king and queen. He's bringing back this idea. So it shows that the rumours had never quite gone away of Jaquetta's involvement uh, or potential involvement in witchcraft. He's also calling upon common knowledge. He doesn't provide any proof for this. He just says, everybody knows it happened. <laughs> and he even says in the clause, sufficient evidence will be provided at a later date if needed. So mm. he's not even saying, yeah, we've got proof, we'll show you. He's saying, if you really need to, we'll come up with something at some point. But, you know, everybody knows they did it, so whatever kind of thing. Um, so, again, it's a very interesting thing to put in there. I guess it highlights how precarious life at court was for women and how, as you mentioned in your book, witchcraft was repeatedly used, how they're utilising it as a political tool against these women at this point. Yeah, definitely. It's a very interesting period, really. It's sort of a century where ideas about witchcraft and magic are developing and they're gaining a lot more prominence. And people are trying to decide what are witches? What kind of magic can people do? Is there certain types of magic that only certain types of people can do? For quite a while, it'd been male-focused magic. 
because it was thought that the sort of nefarious magic that could be really dangerous and evil, you had to be very educated to do it. You couldn't be anybody and access this type of magic. You had to be really intelligent. You had to read lots of books and learn how to do it. And the only people in society who were capable of that were men because women were not educated in the same way. And so for a long time, it was men associated with evil magic. But during this century, this idea of emotional magic and love magic starts to develop. And this is much more easy to center around women because the idea is that it's not this really deep intellectual magic, emotional magic, and women are the emotional creatures. We know how irrational women can be and how emotional we are. And we act on our, we love men and we want to seduce men. And so we'll use magic to do it and get our way. So this idea does start to latch on to these women. And the four women that I talk about in my book, you can really see this development. So Joan of Navarre, who's right at the start of the century, she gets accused in 1419. And she's accused of evil magic, using magic to try and kill the king. And she's accused indirectly, she's said to have hired people to do this for her, because as I've mentioned, she's not thought to be capable to have the magic herself. But as the century goes on, it's viewed as a lot more plausible that women are doing love magic. So it's kind of one of those reciprocal relationships where changing ideas in society links women to love magic. But then because they've been accused of love magic, that makes society think that women do love magic. So it kind of just spins round and round. Yeah. So Elizabeth's position changes, well, improves a bit when Richard III is defeated by Henry Tudor and Henry Tudor marries her daughter, also Elizabeth. (laughs) Also Elizabeth. They like all the same names. What was the end of her life like? So the end of her life is a bit of an enigma, really. She sort of starts life very quietly being the daughter of these lower night and quiet upbringing and then she's thrust onto the stage when she becomes queen and that's so much documented about her but the last few years of her life she really vanishes from the records so as you say her daughter marries Henry Tudor who becomes Henry VII and once this happens Elizabeth retires a bit from court there's lots of political difficulties around her and her daughter because Henry Tudor marries her daughter to reunite the two strands you know you have the Tudor Rose with the Red Rose of Lancaster and the White Rose of York this idea that the two houses are combined and the Wars of the Roses are over and although he has some claim in his own right Elizabeth who he marries actually has very strong claims herself if anything she has stronger claims in many ways she is the daughter of King Edward IV and as I said although England hadn't had a queen in their own right by this point It was only about 70 years until Mary I becomes queen. And in some ways, this makes things difficult for Henry because his claim is weaker and his claim is based a lot more on conquest, on the fact that he defeated Richard. Some people could see it as he's ruling through the right of his wife, um, which is obviously very weak for his own power and position. And so having Elizabeth hanging around at court kind of reinforces that idea of, you know, reminding people that she was married to the king, her daughter was the daughter of the king. And so it kind of stirs up some of this. So she's a bit inconvenient anyway. And some people have suggested that he ousts her from court, sort of banishes her, pops her away. She retires to Bermondsey Abbey, 
which is near the Tower of London, and she has a very quiet retirement. And her lands get taken away by Henry. And so some people sort of say that he was really trying to get rid of her. She was inconvenient. But I don't think it's as simple as that. Although she did have some of that inconveniences, you know, she was his mother-in-law. He was married to her daughter. And when you look at some of the negative things he does, they're not actually what they seem. So he took away some of her land, but he did that to give it to her daughter. England is completely broke. And he's got a wife who is a ruling queen and the ruling queen needs land and money. And so giving her land that belongs to her mother, who's the queen dowager, which is a situation, you know, having two queens in England at once hadn't been seen since the start of the century. It's not quite as bad. You know, it's not like he's taking away her land to punish her. He's taking away her land to support her daughter. But certainly she does have a quiet life. She does just retire to this abbey and pretty much vanishes. But she does stick around in a personal capacity. So she is recorded as being there at the births of her grandchildren, of Elizabeth's children. So she says when Henry VIII is born, uh, she's his godmother. She is involved in the sort of familial side. So she is around somewhat in a personal capacity, but she does disappear pretty much completely from court and from most of the records. And when she dies, her will is quite a sad affair, really, because she has no lands. She has no money. She's very few items of her own. And so she's got this really short will where she sort of says, I don't have anything to give to my children apart from my blessings. And, you know, I hope that God will look after them. And that's pretty much all that she says. And she asks for a really simple funeral. So she definitely ends life very, very quietly and sadly in comparison to sort of how it had been lived. And I'm torn as to whether this is something of her choice. She'd had such a tumultuous life and she had witnessed pretty much everyone she knew was dead by that point. She's been queen for all these years, but it hasn't been a nice time as queen. She's constantly been overthrown or in fear for her life. And so part of me thinks, well, maybe she just wanted to get out of it all. Her daughter was queen, her daughter was secure. And so she just wanted a quiet life and retire to this nunnery. Or it might have just been she had nothing else to do and it wasn't quite her choice, but she had nothing else. So it is a sad end. And, you know, how much of it was her own choosing or not is a bit difficult. But I, I don't think it was wholly of her choosing. You know, I think she did long for those days. In her will, she does mention Edward in her will. She wants to be buried next to him. And, you know, she says that most noble prince of most blessed memory, you know, along those kinds of words. So kind of, invoking his name of like remember those days when it was me and him and you know we ruled everything yeah what do you see as their legacy as a couple then I think they certainly brought a level of romance to the throne it wasn't unheard of the vague love matches or for at least the royalty to fall in love with their partners but certainly the circumstances of their marriage and the idea that a king was human too and he could marry for love as well and marrying an English woman definitely set up that legacy of changing future monarchs. Although they did still marry for diplomacy, there was definitely a much more of a love element, certainly with Henry VIII there. And their descendants have stayed on the throne. Elizabeth II, who's on the throne now, she's descended from Elizabeth Woodville and Anne Edward. So they have the kind of official legacy as well. But I think their story definitely still captures interest today just look at the popularity of Philippa Gregory's series such an interesting period and such a tumultuous period and I think 
people do latch on to the humanity of their relationship that they weren't perfect he had mistresses they were struggling with keeping the kingdom together but at the core of it they loved each other and they had this nice life what they could make of it and I think that definitely has this enduring feel today Absolutely. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking about their relationship with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. It's been fun to have a little chat about them. And thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this very special anniversary episode all about this incredible love story, which has had repercussions through the ages. I thoroughly enjoyed taking a deep dive into the love story between Elizabeth and Edward. Honestly, I think I have a bit of a spot for both of them, but I find Elizabeth just endlessly fascinating. Her, and I'm going to use a very exact word here, but her journey is so complex and her life just is so rich to explore. I can totally understand why Gemma chose to write her book about her, her mother Jaquetta, as well as Joan of Navarre and Eleanor Cobham. Royal Witches, From Joan of Navarre to Elizabeth Woodville, was published by the History Press in 2019, and I will leave a link in the show notes and a link to Gemma's blog as well, because her work is just wonderful, and I highly recommend checking out the book. Her writing is so articulate that all of the complexities of the period, and I think we kind of touched on them (laughs) in this episode, are outlined with ease so that the voices of these women and their stories can finally be heard. If you have enjoyed this anniversary special, then why not return to some of your favourite episodes in the archives or to any episodes you may have missed along the way There are plenty more love stories to be whisked away in, which I hope you very much enjoy. I would also be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening to it now. It means so much to me to hear what you think about the podcast. It really does give me so much joy. As you can tell, that's why I've been doing it for a full year now. You are the reason why this podcast is now one year old. And then I would love it if you were to follow me over on Instagram at Past Loves Podcast, where the conversation continues. And then with all of that, you really, really won't miss a single thing, which is very important if past loves has become your current love. Until soon. Mm-hmm.